Very, very thankful to be here this morning to look again at God's Word in Luke chapter 9. So take your Bibles and turn over there to Luke chapter 9. Last week we saw the disciples demonstrated a wrong response to God's grace. God had been pouring out His grace on them, showing them countless glimpses of His Son's glory. Uh, Jesus has shown them over and over how uh, amazing he is, that he is the God-man incarnate. And yet the disciples, very much like us, even after we become believers, uh, fell into some wrong responses. Uh, pride came. And the first demonstration was pri- of pride was positional pride. They literally argued over who was the greatest among them. Uh, it Again, as we said last week, it's almost startling coming off the fact that Jesus had just told them that he was going to go die for them. And it's all about dying to self, and yet the first thing out of their mouths when they got together was, uh, who's the greatest? <laughs> um, very sad, but very typical of our hearts. Remember we said don't fall into the pride ourself, thinking that we're better than them. Because we're all susceptible to this same pride. The second demonstration of pride was associational pride. They had tried to prevent a fellow believer in Christ from helping a demon-possessed man. The reason they gave for preventing him was that he was not with us following you. In other words, you're not, he wasn't associated with us, so therefore he must not be like us, as good as us, and he must not have the authority we do. We're better than him. Be quiet. Uh, They were against him because he was not with them. Again, Jesus rebukes that in kind way, gentle way, and says, look, if uh, if he's not against us, he's for us. Let him do what he's doing. Now today we're going to look at the last of the prideful responses of some of Jesus' closest disciples. One thing I think that we should all get from this evil response, uh, even by some of Jesus' closest people, is that everyone in the room is vulnerable to this. I don't care how close you get to Jesus, how great your walk with God is. I mean, you've got James and John. Arguably, John could be considered the closest to Jesus. I mean, he was the one that laid his head on the chest of Jesus at the Last Supper. Now, that's a pretty intimate relationship. Uh, To be able to be that close, to kind of whisper in Jesus' ear, who's the one that's betraying you? He had an intimate, close, personal relationship with Christ. And yet, we're going to see here that he's one of these that rises up with this judgmental pride. So be careful, folks. Nobody in here is uh, immune to this. At the same time, as Luke has done numerous times in the book, we will transition to a new section by closing out one concept and introducing new concepts. He closes out the wrong responses of pride and introduces Jesus' resolve to go towards Jerusalem and his eventual glorification. If you notice in 951, it says that Jesus set his face firmly 
or firmly fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. At this point, Luke, in Luke rather, Jesus is in his final months before his death, burial, and resurrection. It's interesting that the most of the book is on is this trip to Jerusalem. Now, I think it's significant to note here. The idea is, is not that Jesus is going straight to Jerusalem. The idea is, is that he's resolved to go to Jerusalem to accomplish the main task, which is to go to heaven, to die, to rise from the dead, and to ascend. That's his focus. So there's going to be some trips over here and trip over there. Go into Jerusalem a little bit, come back out for a little bit. Go into Jerusalem for a little bit, come back out. But his eyes are on his final months and his final accomplished goal. That's what it means in 951. Jesus had alluded to this in 941 when he said, How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Right? He's talking about his coming uh, here. He's alluding to the fact that, hey, how long am I going to stay here with you guys? And then in 951, it says, he firmly fixed his face to go to Jerusalem. That's a literal translation of that passage. He was firmly fixed on the task to come. He uses metaphor languages. That is, uh, it's not literally he firmly fixed his face. Okay, my face is always going this direction. It has the idea of picture language of saying he is fixed on going to the cross. He's resolved to go and accomplish what's set before him. This is a shocking response to what Jesus was experiencing and what he was going to experience in Jerusalem. I mean, think about this for a second. He knew what he was going to face. He knew the evil he was going to face. He knew how bad it was going to be. I mean, all you have to do is read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. He knew how bad it would be. He knew it was going to be horrible. And yet, what did he do? He resolved to go. He resolved, I'm going to die. He resolved, this is going to happen. Even if it means my death. Jesus was also dealing with tons and tons of pride from people around him, as we said. And yet, he still sets his face to go and die for them. I mean, think about this for a second. Uh, you've got the disciples around him arguing over who's the greatest. <laughs> then you've got, going along, along that same line, we'll see in their passage today, the people that he was going to die for, or at least... People from that group, the Samaritans, they say, hey, do you want me to call down fire on their heads? So here we have these disciples that are prideful, arrogant, selfish sinners hanging out with him. Okay? What's he going to do at the cross? Die for their sins. What are they doing to earn his resolve? Nothing. <laughs> the, everything they do is actually a roadblock or a temptation to what? Turn around and go the other way. Think about it. How many of you find this? Parents, any parent knows exactly what I'm talking about. Do you, do you find that sometimes when your children disobey and they're really ugly and, and, and nasty about something, 
that at that moment, you don't really just want to give them a big hug and do something loving to them. Uh, we've started this new thing with Julie about eating. It's it's great. And she, I said, you know, we've started this thing, you know, if you love us, you will obey us. If you, because she says, I love you, Dad. She does the sign. I love you, Dad. And we say, well, just eat then. Take a bite. I love you, Dad. Okay, eat. I love you, Dad. Well, if you love me, you'll take a bite. You'll obey. And then she takes it, and she says, now I love you. And she's getting this concept of obedience shows is shown by keeping your commandments or obeying, right? But the question, it would be very interesting. Do you love me now is what she asked me after one time taking a bite. Do you love me now? No, Julie, Julie, you've missed it. I love you whether or not you take a bite or not. I'm committed to you whether or not you bite another bite of food ever. I love you. My love is not based on whether or not you obey. But you should obey because you love me. Very interesting. Jesus here resolves to go to the cross, take it on, no matter how bad the pride is. No matter how sinful the people around him are, he fixes his face to die for them. It's good news, isn't it? Our God is a loving God. Jesus knew the Father's plan. You get this in the Hebrews passage. It reminds me of this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He saw into the future, knowing the joy to come, and endured the cross for the joy set before him. So he was fixed. And in a similar way, we need to keep our eyes on him when we are tempted to elevate ourselves. So let's read our passage today and look at the pride we should avoid by fixing our eyes on the Lord who resolved to endure death and resurrection for our benefit. In other words, let's see how we should avoid pride by keeping our eyes fixed on the selfless one. Christ. Luke 9:51. Let's read. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. In our passage today, I want to look at the contrasting characters in this passage. The contrasting characters in this passage. Today we will see the prideful contrasted 
with the merciful Savior. The prideful contrasted with the merciful Savior. So again, as we reflect on this passage, we should all ask ourselves, who are we going to exalt, ourselves or the Lord Jesus? So we'll start first with the prideful, then move to the merciful. Let's look at the prideful. In 954, we see John and James' response here. It says, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's look a little bit at this judgmental pride. Who are James and John? They are instruments of God's grace. James and John, God had, as mentioned, poured out tremendous amounts of unmerited favor on them. Jesus had called them the sons of thunder, though. James and John were probably named this, given this name by Jesus, because of their boldness and passion for Jesus. Uh, it had both a good aspect to the name, but it could lead to a bad aspect of the name. Boy, have you ever seen that with people, too? You have people that have kind of personality traits that their boldness can be a positive thing, but it can be a negative thing, too. Their boldness in the hands of God, humbled to him, is great. But their boldness in the hands of self and pride is a negative. James and John, God had poured out blessings, and they were bold. They had the mountaintop experience. They were uh, literally on the mountain of transfiguration. They saw Elijah and Moses uh, with Jesus and saw his glory and heard all of these things. They had the intimate relationship, as I mentioned, with Jesus. And they had a full desire to know him more. At one point in, in, in one of the other Gospels, they say, they come to him and say, Hey, will you grant that I can sit on the left and the right of you in the kingdom? Now, when we first hear that, we say, Man, that's that pride again. Well, the way Jesus responds to that one's a little different than this one. This one, it, he rebukes them in 951 and 50, through 54, or f through 56. But in the other one, he's a little bit... You don't know what you're asking from me. You're asking to die, ultimately. Because if you want to be next to me, this close to me, you have to be intimately related to me. And that means, guess what? Complete death to self. So they get it, though, to a degree. They want to be intimately involved in Christ. They want to know him. They want to serve him. So they have this passion. They have this desire. They have this boldness. They are instruments of God's unmerited favor. Yet, in this passage, John and James were still sinners, as we see the experience of pride. The Samaritans were the ones they were dealing with. Jesus sends out messengers into the city to go on to Jerusalem with the idea that they could stay there. Their group of 12 men, maybe upwards of 70 men, could stay in Samaria. Okay, on the way to Jerusalem, the Samaritans were, and most of you know a little bit about them, they were a mix of Jews and invading countries over the years. The northern tribes, to be specific, of Israel. 
They had been taken a captive by Assyria. And in the process, the ones that were left behind intermarried with the invading armies and their peoples. This group was a, were a watered-down Jewish religion. They rejected all but the first five books of the Bible, and even those they changed to fit their needs and their desires. So the Jews looked down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans looked at the Jews with despise also. The Jews considered Samaritans unclean people. Samaria is roughly in this area. If you see Galilee, it's roughly in this area, down along this way. Now, what would happen if Jesus is up here, let's say he's up in Capernaum, which is most likely where he was at the time, or in this area. He is headed towards Jerusalem, down here, right there. How do you get there? Straight line is through Samaria. What the Jews often would do is go around Samaria. They would cross over and go down here and go across to avoid the Samaritans because they were unclean people in their minds. They had intermarried. They were horrible. They were unclean. They were rejecting the Bible. So these were the worst of the worst. Notice where Jesus says to go, though. Go through it. We're going through Samaria. Showing again his love and his compassion to the outcast, right? Like the woman at the well who was a Samaritan. All right. So he sends messengers. We want to go into Samaria. And what do they do? No. You can't come through. You can't bring your group of people in here. It's interesting. <laughs> the setting is it's, it's startling. Because in 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah dealt with some people of the same area, right in the same area of Samaria. Now, Elijah, when had James and John seen him? Well, he's in the Old Testament. They had never seen him, except on the Mount Transfiguration. So you can just imagine what's going through these guys' mind. I saw Elijah. I met Moses. I saw Elijah, you know, Elijah of 2 Kings chapter 1. What happened in 2 Kings chapter 1? Elijah called down fire from heaven and killed 50 men twice. He literally did it. So they meet Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, Elijah, he's one of my bros. He's one of my buddies. I'm like Elijah. Hey, I'm one of you guys. Jesus sends messengers into Samaria in the same area. Got it fresh in their mind. They've read 2 Kings. They know it. Hey, what do you think, Jesus? You want me to call down some fire on their heads? Missing the whole point. Elijah did not do it out of his own prideful reasons for calling down fire. God had called down fire through Elijah to show that he was a just God and that worshiping this false God was wrong. These were the ones that Jesus was coming to save, but yet they took their association, their, their association on the mountain and said, Hey, I'm something. You want me to, you, you want to use me? I can call down fire too. 
I want to see some people roasted. What's wrong with the picture? There's a disconnect. It's all about self-exaltation, all about self-pride, who I am. And looking down on the Samaritans that had rejected, the focus is different for John and James than it was with Elijah. It wasn't for God's glory. It was for self-exaltation. An important principle to remember here, listen closely. Pride can cause us to view the lost wrong. Listen, write it down. This is good. Listen. Focus. Pride can cause us to view the lost wrong. We will look at people that are not saved with an air of, I'm better. God judge them. (laughs) Anybody that's been at USF campus (laughs) and ever seen the guys that have those signs, they have this tendency, Micah that I did the debate with. That is the same thing. I'm something special. Everybody else, God's going to judge you. Missing the whole point. We are all vulnerable to this kind of pride, folks. Everybody. We see our relationship with Christ, and we can stumble into self-exaltation. The pride comes because we are so forgetful of who we really are apart from Christ. We might not say it aloud. We often look at our position and our spirit-given righteousness. In other words, our acts of good deeds, our righteousness that comes because of Christ and because of the Spirit. We look at that and say, that's a means for us to think good of ourselves and see merit in that. I'm telling you, the more I study the Bible, the more I realize that the road that Jesus was talking about, the narrow road, is so narrow, you can only walk on it by grace. I mean, it's like walking a tightrope of dental floss. (laughs) It's that narrow. Why? Well, because we talked about it in death service this morning. Our works give us assurance that we are saved. But we also know that our works don't give us any merit. That we're only saved by what he did. And by faith in him alone. Yet at the same time, if we don't have works, we're not going to have any assurance. But if we have works, we have the temptation to think that we're what? Something special. We fall off over there. It's like here or here or here. It's like that. And James and John are prime examples of this, folks. They've been to the mountaintop. They've seen the glory of Christ. They've met Elijah. And yet, pride. Pride is self-righteousness, which leads to evaluating ourselves and condemning others. Elevating ourselves and condemning others. What are the clues of this judgmental pride? Here they are. Here's some clues, real quick. Get these. First, an attitude of thinking you're smarter than someone else or brighter than somebody else. If you're always taking attention that I know something more than somebody else, then that is a strong 
clue. That's a warning flag. Be careful. If you think you're better or smarter or have more intelligence. Mm. Second, keeping record or taking account of how you are better than other people. In other words, well, I did this, I did this, she did this, she did that. You do that, married couple? Do you understand what I'm talking about there? Well, I did this, and she did that. Well, I did this, and she did that. So I must be more in the right than her. What are you doing? You're elevating yourself over your spouse. This is the same thing James and John did. It's judgmental, thinking you're better than somebody else, taking a record of that. That's what they fell into. And then what's it lead to? It leads to anger over other people's sin. Oh, my, folks. Oh, my. This is the... You want to... I would would suggest that anger might be the prime, the foremost... Indicator of pride in a person's heart. The amazing thing is, is that Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. (laughs) So somehow you can have a righteous anger. But I don't know about you. I think I just need to avoid all anger altogether. Because I found when I start evaluating my heart with any kind of anger, I find most of the time it's because what? I've been wronged, and I see myself as better, and those people as worse, and they need to change. Do you see this, folks? This is James and John. I can even see them getting a little bit of anger and saying, Hey, you want me to call down fire? You want us to command a fire to come down on these wretched, miserable pagans? Because after all... They're coming against us. I'm with you, and we're going to Jerusalem. And they probably think going to Jerusalem with the purpose of what? Setting up the kingdom, which misses the whole point. No, he's going to die. So die to yourself. Oh, folks. Anger is a great cue or a clue. Everyone is vulnerable. James and John fell into this. And it's all because they got their attention on themselves and not on the Savior. In contrast to this, let's look at Jesus. In contrast to this, pride is the merciful Savior revealed in this passage. Notice the merciful one. A reason of judgment, a reason for judgment receives mercy instead. It says he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Literally, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Again, this is picture language. He was discerned, determined, resolved to go to Jerusalem. Well, this theme of placing his face is repeated in 52, and you don't see it in the translation, but it's there in the Greek. That He sent messengers ahead of him. Literally, he sent messengers before his face is how it could be literally translated. And then it's repeated again in verse 53. But the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because he was traveling towards Jerusalem or his face was going towards Jerusalem. So it's this tendency or this concept's going over and over. And the idea of his face 
is his total being, who he is and his attitude and his direction. He's set to go this way, and he sent messengers ahead of him as representatives of him. So the Samaritans should have let him through, right? Because, I mean, who are they representing? The king, the Messiah. They should let him go. But they didn't. And then when he shows up, or it says the reason why the Samaritans wouldn't let him go through is because he had his attention on Jerusalem. What did they want? They wanted a Messiah from what? From Samaria. They didn't want a Jew. You're going to Jerusalem? Forget this. Literally, because his face was going towards Jerusalem, the Samaritans hated Jews, like I said. And this man was going there. The problem here, though, was ignorance. Mark it down. Ignorance. The Samaritans had no idea who Jesus was and who his group of followers were. All they knew was that he was a Jew and that he, it, Jews despised Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews. Matter of fact, think about it for a second, folks. They were no different than going to Iran right now and talking to a Muslim. They were completely clueless to who he was. It wasn't like they had been given much. Because what did the Jews do? They avoided the Samaritans. They didn't give them the gospel. They didn't tell them that their Messiah was the one for them to. They told them what? You're excluded. So they were completely ignorant. And this is a great clue to God's mercy. Jesus knew. Jesus understood these Samaritans, knew their ignorance. And his mind was focused on Jerusalem to die, to rise from the dead for them. Did you hear me? So when he stopped, what does he do? Oh, I expect it. I know it. That's why I'm going to Jerusalem, because people like you need a Savior. He looked at it in the positive that, hey, these are people that need me. Do I wipe them out, or do I show mercy and compassion and go to another town so I can get to Jerusalem so they can get saved? That's his point. He looks at the outside world and doesn't condemn it. He provides salvation. How does Jesus respond with a word? With mercy. Great mercy. He doesn't give judgment. Instead, he goes another way to Jerusalem. And then sends the disciples back to them after he accomplishes the work. Now, look. This is such a great passage. Look at Acts 1, 7 and 8. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Look what he says. It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. What's his point? Now that I've accomplished my death, burial, resurrection... There is victory. Sin can be forgiven. Go back to the Samaritans. 
go talk to those ones that wouldn't let us through. I've got good news for them. Victory has come. What a merciful Savior. What's he doing? What's he doing? He's showing compassion on the ignorant. What a great God he is. Jesus is once again shown to be the compassionate, merciful Savior in this passage. He often does not give people what they deserve. Instead, he gives them hope and saves them. As we have looked at the pride expressed in Christ's followers, hopefully we see this same pride in us. And at the same time, we can't think we deserve his grace. But we can also thank God that he's a merciful Savior. How many in in here have been prideful like that towards other people? I got good news for you. There's a merciful Savior for us. He is compassionate to even us prideful ones. You know what would have been very appropriate here? James and John says, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven? No, I've decided another route. You guys are being prideful in this statement. You're dead. Zoop. Fire from heaven. I think I'll get some new guys. Give me a couple Samaritans. That would have been appropriate. See, that's the merciful Savior. He's so good. I'm so thankful, aren't you? His mercies are new every morning, as Lamentations 3.22 says. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah got it, didn't he? Oh, his mercies are new every morning. I am so thankful. (laughs) Aren't you? How prideful we are, yet he continues to show compassion on us. Prideful, wicked sinners. We keep breathing. (laughs) We keep eating. And we have our sins forgiven, past, present, and future. Mercy is new every morning. His mercy is also seen in the rebuke to redirect a sinful attitude. This is found in Luke 9, 54. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they, the Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven? But he turned and rebuked them. You say, well, how in the world is this mercy? How is a rebuke mercy? Well, it's mercy, I promise. (laughs) Because what they deserve is judgment. Instead, they get correction. Do we look at correction as merciful? We should. But we don't. What happens most of the time when we're corrected? We get more prideful. <laughs> and we say, wait, 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 wait. I don't think I'm that bad. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. You're rebuking me. What about the Samaritans? He showed mercy. 
he kindly and compassionately rebuked them. Now, in this passage, it has a little section here. And it says in 55 and 56, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. All right. If you notice in your Bibles, in many of your Bibles, these words are not included. If you have ESV, NIV, a lot of the other new versions don't even include these words. This is not an issue I want to spend a lot of time on, but I'm going to briefly talk about it. The main point of the message is is that Jesus is rebuking them for this wrong attitude, correct? What he said most likely is not there. This was probably added eight to nine hundred years later. It's not in the original manuscripts. It's in in the earlier manuscripts. There's no form of this, or there's no evidence of this. But the truth is still there. That's why the scribe probably commentated and added it. The idea is already there, and Jesus says it in numerous other places. So whether he said these exact words or not, it's okay. Now, I want you to say, I want you to get something, and since it's brought up, I want you to listen closely. What you have is 99.999% accurate. You have a great version of the Bible. If you want a full explanation of uh, what manuscripts are and all these, there's 25,000. Greek manuscripts. If you want this and you want to get into those great things, (laughs) dig down deep. Uh, There's a great sermon by John MacArthur on Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. That's a good sermon to describe all this about the lower and higher criticism and all this. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time talking about it. Because the fact of the matter is, is that what Jesus, what it says Jesus says here... He said it at other places, so the truth is there. Okay? For example, look at Luke 19.10. Jesus said this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, he, this is what he said, and all manuscripts don't debate this. Or John 3.17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. So the truth is there. John 12, 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So the concept of the rebuke is there everywhere. Okay? So we don't have to spend a whole bunch of time. The point of the passage is not exact words there anyway. The point is their pride He rebuked them. He showed mercy to the Samaritans and them because he was there to deliver them, not to condemn them. It's great mercy Jesus shows us when he exhorts us to view the world with humble, compassionate eyes, not proud, self-righteous eyes. Folks, we must get the main point of this passage. Get it. Stop being judgmental (laughs) stop elevating yourself over other people stop putting ourselves above other people now again this does not mean that you embrace every doctrine that comes along 
Do you understand? That does not mean that Muslims and Christians should get together in one unified religion. No, that's not what he means. It means stop elevating yourself and your heart above those people. Stop looking at those people as that you're better than them. Because you're not apart from the grace of God. I was talking to my wife, and I've got to tread lightly here, but uh, the other lifestyle concept that's on television all the time now. We have a tendency, all of us, to look in judgment and say, oh, that's just horrible. And those people are horrible sinners. Well, folks, you're a horrible sinner. They're a horrible sinner. Yes, they need deliverance. But stop talking as if you're better than them. You're not. You are them. Fact. Only but the grace of God, we do, wouldn't. It's interesting. We watch television and we see a, 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 a lady. I, I was watching just last night. We were flipping through a channel and this lady says, Man, that guy's really good looking. I like it when the football players take off their shirts. And we look at that and we go, oh, that's not too bad. She's kind of attracted to him. We justify in our mind. No, that's lust. That's wicked. Horrible lust. Don't lust after somebody. But then somebody on comes in and says something about the other lifestyle. And we go, oh, blah, blah, blah. This is James and John saying, you want us to call down fire from heaven? That's what it is. Be careful. Now, that doesn't mean that we say that that lifestyle is good and right. It's not. It's sin. But lust is sin. Repent and believe in Christ. Turn from all sin and trust in him alone. He is your only hope. Stop judging, thinking you're better. A couple of keys to avoid this judgmental pride is we must see ourselves in others. Do you see yourself in others? <laughs> Ted Bundy? Do you see yourself in Ted Bundy? No, I don't see myself in Ted Bundy. Apart from the grace of God, that's who you are. We talked in Systematic last week, theology, about God's common grace. It is only because of God's common grace that we're not all Ted Bundys. You understand? See yourself in others. That's who you are apart from God's grace. It will destroy judgmental pride, won't it? Second, we must remember how Jesus treated sinners. And foremost, ourselves. Look. 1 Timothy 1.15 has both of these thoughts there. Look at how Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about himself. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. He's got both concepts, doesn't he? He came to deliver sinful, wicked people. I'm the foremost of them. That's how you avoid judgmental pride. Okay, 
I want to, we'll do a test real quick. Who's the greatest sinner in here? Raise your hand. You're close. The moment you get this, you've humbled yourself under the mighty hand of God and you realize that your salvation is only because of God's grace. The moment that you begin to think that you're better than anybody in this building or anybody in this world, you've lost. And you are saying, do you want me to command fire to come down from heaven on us? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus came to die for those who reject him. And we are foremost of rejectors. But notice Jesus has a resolve to suffer, to redeem a people. I love this. What a merciful Savior. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, over to Acts chapter 8, and we'll conclude with this. Acts chapter 8. I love this. This is so cool. (laughs) Who wrote Acts? Luke. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to Acts eventually when we finish Luke. The, what's so neat about this is you got the Samaritans stop them. This is the first time Samaritans are mentioned. You see the full circle. Luke, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 to 7. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. They were scattered because of persecution, right? They really didn't want to go out. Even Jesus had told them there seems to be some kind of resistance to going out. They just wanted to hang out there. So God allows for persecution to come into the situation. They go out, and where do they go? Philip went down to a city, to the city of Samaria, and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the crowds with one accord were given attention to what was said to Philip by Philip as they heard and saw signs which was he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Who was he proclaiming? Where was he proclaiming? Samaria. Jesus resolved, fixed, died, accomplished. Now go tell him. And you're going to be a little resistant. I'll make you go. (laughs) And you went. And he gave the gospel to Samaria. And look who goes and prays for him. Look at this. Look at 814. It's wonderful. Look. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaritans, that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. The irony here. John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. What's this? The very guy that was calling down fire on Samaritans because he despised these pagans is now told to what? And sent to go and pray for them that they had the full blessings of the new covenant. What a great truth. Who went to Samaria? John did. (laughs) He didn't go. The first initial thought, he went exactly when God wanted him to. At the end, after Jesus had been glorified. 
Folks, when we truly understand who we are and what Christ has done, we will put others above ourselves, above our culture, above our personal pride, above our judgmental attitudes, and we will proclaim the gospel. God has shown mercy on those who deserve judgment. That's us. The right view of Jesus' mercy should motivate all of us to love like Christ loves. So here is the pride check this week. How have you responded to the loss this week? How did you respond to those around you this week? How about people that work for you or people that work you work for, your bosses, your employers? How have you responded to your children, the ones that don't know Christ yet? Have you looked at them as that you're better than them? Or have you proclaimed the gospel to them by the way that you show compassion and grace and kindness to them? How have you treated the people that have rejected you this week? How did you do this week when somebody said something mean to you, rejected you? Were you like James and John? Lord... Do you want me to call down fire from heaven on them? Or maybe you just skipped right to the anger and yelled at them yourself. If so, you've forgotten mercy. You've forgotten the compassion of God. Repent. Trust in him. If we know Jesus, we will respond as he responded. We will resolve to pick up our cross and follow him and die to ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Very convicting, yet at the same time encouraging. You rebuke us through your word. You show us your son, the one to whom we cling to. We trust in him alone. We need him, God. It is his righteousness that's our only hope. At the same time, we long to obey you. We long to show compassion like you showed compassion to us. Oh, God, show your glory in our lives. Help us to be merciful followers of you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.